2: Welcome back, everybody, to another episode of the Two Tongues Podcast. Well, it's a Sunday episode. Sunday is the day that Kyle and I usually get together and uh, bullshit with one another and try to make some entertaining conversation out of it, which I think we do pretty successfully uh, if I could pat myself on the back. However, on this particular Sunday, Kyle is not available. Uh dude's got responsibilities. So uh it's not just uh the Two Tongues podcast. So Kyle's not available today. The good news is, um I do have a couple of recordings that uh we've got um, you know, just sitting in storage. Uh hasn't been published yet, but a lot of uh, a lot of thanks has to go to um Daniel Torridan of the Onion Unlimited podcast. He's certainly become a friend of the Two Tongues show and he's been on many times and uh thing is we've we've been on his podcast uh as well. And most recently Daniel and I did a live stream uh, on the topic of hermeticism and it's a really interesting topic because it's related to the occult it's related to alchemy it's related to new age mysticism but it's also deeply related to ancient philosophy um, deeply deeply related to um, much like religion for instance and uh, and um, concepts of um, uh psychology you know so there's a really interesting overlap in some of the hippy dippy areas that I am still reluctant to tread uh but then some of those other areas that are near and dear to to my uh to my heart so um talking about hermeticism was really interesting it's not something I'm particularly steeped in but um uh we talked about uh, a relatively modern hermetic writing and then we also talked about a, a, a really ancient one called the emerald tablet of hermes let me tell you what's interesting about this. There's all these writings that were attributed to uh, the God Hermes, the Greek god Hermes. Hermes is the messenger of the gods, so you might think of him something like a like an angel from the Bible that comes down and talks to uh, human beings to give him a message, a burning bush maybe that does the same thing. Um, Hermes is the messenger of the gods he's he's the the intermediary between man and the gods, between the mortal world and the spiritual one and um so he's kind of like a revelatory prophetic type of a character so when you have books attributed to him you're like okay <clears throat> we're talking about secret knowledge from heaven we're talking about something that hermes knows uh that that you know uh, mortal men don't know um i don't know what that might be but it's certainly it's certainly interesting and you might want to know what that is um and it's really far reaching and broad the impact that hermeticism has had it also ties together greek Philosophy and religion, ancient Greek philosophy and religion, with Egyptian philosophy and religion, uh, which is which is super interesting. Um, there's a god in the Egypt, Egyptian pantheon named Thoth or Thoth. I, I think it's Thoth. Uh, he's like a um, ibix headed god. He's the uh, god of knowledge. He's the scribe of the gods. He's a really interesting character. Also, um, he has some connections to Prometheus because he's he's somebody who taught. Um, civilization, all the arts to mankind he taught, taught us how to you know make metals and and uh, you know from the ground and how to make medicines and how to how to write and how to read the stars and all that sort of sort of stuff um, so there's a huge parallels with greek mythology and and um they basically just united the idea of Hermes with the idea of toth and they recognized that they 're really talking about the same God, this intermediary character between heaven and earth. And it's it's super interesting. Um, And the Hermetic writings are like lots of biblical writings, um, especially the prophets and the book of Revelations. It's like that, highly symbolic, very difficult to understand. Everything has more than one meaning. Everything is a picture. And um, all those pictures have associations. And so it's something that you can translate in infinite number of ways, um, and it, it's something that might be meaningful in an infinite number of ways, and I think that's why uh, it's it's it pops up and it, it's as applicable in things like like alchemy and the occult and and you know philosophy and metaphysics all at the same time. It's pretty interesting. So that's what we're going to do today. We're going to get into uh, Hermes Trismegistus, Hermes the Thrice Great, and all the things that were supposedly written by this intermediary secret knowledge from heaven to earth without further ado um here we go hello and welcome to
3: episode 75 of onion unlimited podcast i'm your host daniel Torridon, and i'm joined by my buddy chris all the way from uh, cleveland in ohio from the two tongues podcast
0: hello hello daniel
3: to be back again
2: it's hard for me not to sing Oh Danny Boy when we when we start these podcasts.
3: <laughs> uh, super. So how are you?
2: I'm doing well. In fact, uh, my sister is visiting from out of town. Yep. And uh, I, I had a late night last night because of that and was feeling not so great. And then the, my wife and um, my sister and the kids went to the pool, the, the little community pool. And that's where I was when I realized I was late for our podcast. So I feel very refreshed and ready <laughs> to go. And I was in the middle
3: of another podcast. <laughs> I totally forgot we were doing this one. So apologies to anyone that thought we were going live at five. It's now at six almost. So there we go. Yep. Um, so uh, just a quick update this week. Let me just tell you this. Um, remember the first week that we met on here, I told you that I someone told me on Twitter I was overthinking things. Yes. And then the second week, the second time we met, Someone told me uh, I was shallow. Hmm. (laughs) This week I've been told I'm crazy.
2: Oh, the trifecta.
3: Hmm. So I I think that was uh, crazy was all they could come up with in uh, argument to uh, something I posted, which I think, I don't know if you think this, but I think when someone accuses you of being crazy, I think that is because you're getting too close to the truth.
2: Hmm. Yeah, I think um, calling somebody crazy is like calling somebody racist these days. It's just a, it's just a way of shutting down the conversation, right? That's it. You're crazy. Yeah. You're crazy.
3: Um. Yeah. And uh, basically, the, I, I think you're uh, you're knocking on wisdom's door. I actually found a quote in um, this. May not mean an awful lot to you, um, but it will mean a lot to any of my. Uh, x j w uh listeners let me just see if I can find it um you know when it comes to truth uh there's a fallacy isn't there where people um say you know like well Hitler thought that or something along those lines yeah right As if uh, just because he did, that means uh, every single thing that came out of his mouth was false. Um, This was a quotation from one of the Watchtower magazines, which is what the uh, the witnesses read. Um, It was from 1879. And it was their founder, a guy called Charles Taze Russell. In an article entitled What is Truth, he said, A truth presented by Satan himself is just as true as a truth that's stated by God.
2: <laughs> I smell <laughs> that one. Yeah, yeah. That's the one isn't it? I like that. Yeah, the, the um what is it? It's called the uh, ad hominem. I think that's what that's what the fallacy is, attacking the man. Yeah. Right.
3: That's it. That's what Satan thinks. Yeah. <laughs> there you go. If uh, if indeed Satan is real, even if uh, it's Satan saying it, if it is true, uh, I think the point being made is that truth stands on its own merit. Hmm. It doesn't matter who says it. So there you go. So I've been accused of overthinking, being shallow, and being crazy. So anybody's guess what next week is
2: going to hold. Well, you know, you know, when we were talking about how um... – how symptoms of insanity are are awful close to symptoms of mystical enlightenment, you know? Uh, yes. So maybe maybe being called crazy is sort of a compliment.
3: <laughs> a candid compliment. I'll take that. Um, I've been doing a bit of reading this week. Uh, I've been reading a book by a guy called uh, Paul Wallace. I don't know if you've ever come across Paul Wallace. I don't think so. He's a writer and a speaker, and uh, he's written a well, he's written a number of books, but he's written a trilogy of books called the Eden Books. Um, mm. The first one's entitled Escaping from Eden. And it follows on the thought that we were discussing the other week about uh, the Elohim in Genesis 1 not being singular, but being plural, and that it could actually refer to gods, not God. So that's quite, a, uh, quite an interesting yeah. one. Um, anything to say on that before I,
2: well, I just wanted to tell you, Daniel, I never, I never heard the El Elyon phrase until you brought it up. Oh, really? Never encountered that particular phrase. And, uh, then I saw somebody in a tweet today use it. I I literally never encountered that before.
3: Yeah. Interesting. Isn't it? It's, Mm -hmm. um, it looks as though El Elyon was first used by, um, Melchizedek, the king mm. priest of Salem, before it became Jerusalem later. Oh. Um, obviously not an Israelite at the time. And uh, it was Abraham that met this king priest, uh, Melchizedek. And Melchizedek refers to uh, El Elyon, his God, and it literally means God most high. And then um, it looks as though in the redacted version, it looks as though the redaction uh, redactors in the fourth or fifth century BCE, have then uh, got Abraham referring to El Elion as Yahweh. Mm. So it looks as though they do that quite a bit. They they identify the most high God, and then some little redactor somewhere in Persia mm. is sitting in Yahweh.
2: <laughs> no, it's it's funny. I don't know the um I don't know the ancient languages, so I could be wrong, but I know El means God and yep. And El is the, first, is the beginning of Elion, and you say it means the most high. And, of course, I'm familiar with God being called the most high. Um, but what occurs to me is that the high gods were, for a big chunk of history and a big part of the world, they were sky gods. They were gods of the heavens, and they were gods of the sky. Like, like Jupiter, Deus dius potter is the sky father. And yes. so, so El Elyon means God most high. There's a connection between the word God and high, which is probably a connection to the sky and origins of Yahweh or or El being a sky god. That's pretty interesting. I
3: think there's there probably is a connection there. Um, an interesting one as a Jehovah's Witness, uh, a scripture that we used all the time, was Psalm 83, verse 18, um, which is the one that says that people may know that you... Um are you alone are the most high over all the earth um and it actually puts the Yahweh in there you Yahweh are alone the most high over all the earth oh, interesting um most high it always struck me as a bit strange that it said most high over all the earth mm. It doesn 't say over the heavens and the earth, it just says mm. over the earth uh, which would kind of fit the demigod kind of role yeah that's kind of well have been yeah
2: yeah yeah that's interesting
3: <laughs> so uh, yeah I've been reading all about that escaping from Eden I've put a uh, link on my books page on uh, Onion Unlimited and he also made a very interesting connection in one of his uh, videos that I was watching this is Paul Wallace again uh, about the connection between India and Israel and the fact that Jesus um during that kind of silent period between when he was a 11 year old kid at the temple and when he suddenly popped up on the scene again at 30 years old um he may have been off in India learning some of the uh, mystic arts what do you make of that
2: <laughs> yeah well I have heard that I think I'm, I think I might have mentioned it um <laughs> I can't remember the it. specifics, but it was uh, it was the name Issa that appears in Buddhist um history. Yeah. And there's there's some people who think that this Issa character who traveled there from um you know from the West uh of you know China uh, Nepal from the West, that could have been anywhere, it could have been anywhere in the Middle East, certainly. Um, that Issa character's name sounds a whole lot like Jesus. And if you hear this, this histories that are spoken of about him, he sounds a bit like Jesus. He's a, uh, you know, he's a spiritual leader. He's somebody who's, um, a learner who's, who's there to learn the spiritual, uh, truths of other people. And it reminds you a lot of like, um, like, like Socrates, you know, who went to Egypt to, Mm -hmm. to learn, you know, uh, he went all over, but he wanted to learn from the wisest people all over the world, you know, what their wisdom was. And I that
3: think that makes, uh, makes a lot of sense, doesn't
2: it? Sure does. Yeah.
3: There was some uh, some connection as well that uh, Wallace made uh, interesting connection. This the wise men or the magi, as mm-hmm. they referred to in scripture, that visited uh, Jesus um, as an infant, uh, it says that they were wise men from the East and that they followed his star in order mm. to find him. And uh, the question comes up, why were why were um, Eastern mystics interested in a Jewish messiah? They wouldn't be. Um, but they might be if there was some rumour that this uh, infant may have been a reincarnation of the Buddha. <laughs> which is a, <laughs> I've never thought of that before. Um, but he makes this, he makes quite a, a good argument for that. But um, he may have been viewed uh, by those in the East as a reincarnation of the Buddha. And when word got out, because um, by this time, Jesus wasn't a baby. He was probably about two or three years old, living in a house at the time that the um, the Magi came to see him. There's the, uh, the nativity, um, uh scene isn't there where they're visiting him in a manger uh, and he's a little baby um uh, you know swaddled up um, that's actually completely wrong, apparently he was somewhat older at the time
2: <laughs> by the time the wise man reached him, right, right, so I have two things to, I can say about the magi that are interesting, Daniel, the first one is well, the second one's a little disappointing. the first one is this. <laughs> The, the Magi, the, the Magi is a word that the ancient Persians used for their priests, and they were Zoroastrian priests. And there's a lot of connections between Zoroastrianism and Judaism and Christianity that nobody really knows about. And we can talk about that. If mm. you know. So, yes, so what what you have is these people from the east. We don't know exactly where, but maybe they were coming from Baghdad. Maybe they were coming from Persia. Maybe they were coming, you know, from somewhere like like that. Uh, And they, these pretty Zoroastrian priests show up to see the baby Jesus. They're they're a completely different culture, completely different language, completely different religion. And I always thought that was one of the coolest stories in all the Bible. And that leads me to point number two. Uh, When I was in college, I went to an American Academy of Religion seminar with my professor. Uh, Shout out to Dr. Tim Davis. And we went to Chicago. We went to um, uh, this seminar. And on the drive there, we got to talking, and I, I brought up the story. And he, he said to me, that was probably added to the scripture, the idea that these people were magi, uh, as a way of making it the appeal of Jesus cross-cultural. So it was probably not original. I don't know what the evidence of that is, but i got to tell you, it was the biggest bummer to hear that from <laughs> from somebody who I respected, you know? Um, yeah. So there's some things that will probably come up during this conversation uh, when we get into hermeticism. But while we're talking about Zoroastrianism, Daniel, Hmm. what do you know about Zoroastrianism? Do you have any experience with that yet?
3: Um, At this point, zero. Um, So I uh, look forward to learning a bit about this. Um, I have this week been looking at um, a philosophy known as new thought or higher thought which is where hermeticism comes in. Okay. Um, And it actually mentioned in that that uh, there's a connection with Zoroastrianism and uh, Egyptology and Greece and so forth. But in terms of what I know about Zoroastrianism, no, zero. So uh, please, please enlighten.
2: Well, I'll just give you a handful of things that I learned when I was a teenager that still to this day blow my mind. Um so, okay, Zoroastrianism used to be called uh, Europeans used to call it Mazdaism and that's where the the car manufacturer Mazda gets its name from ah. the high yeah from the high god of their religion whose name was Ahura Mazda which means wise lord and the the prophet of that religion was a man named Zoroaster or um Zarathustra that that's uh, you might be familiar from the Nietzsche book thus spoke Zarathustra same guy Zoroastrian is okay. Greek pronunciation, and he was a prophet who predates Moses historically, and he showed up um, in um, the Middle East saying um, there was only one God, and his name is Ahura Mazda. So he, you can think of him as maybe the earliest monotheist, which is really interesting. But a, a little bit of a twist is that in Zoroastrianism, they don't believe that Um, Ahura Mazda is the only supernatural creature. They believe the world is populated by supernatural creatures. And the big one that you need to be concerned about, his name is Arhiman. He's the devil. So what you have is God, Ahura Mazda, and Arhiman, the devil. And the way that they present it is like you have a good God and you have an evil God. And they're always at war with each other. They're, they're They're always struggling within human beings for dominance. So what you get there is the good God versus bad God thing that Christianity picked up. Um, the ideas of the of the of Lucifer and the devil that don't appear in Judaism. Um, you know, even even presuming that the serpent in the garden was the devil is, is reading into that. It's that's not what the story says. So so there the, the fact that Christianity adopted this spiritual warfare um happening for our souls and in the world, good versus evil, that comes from Zoroastrianism. Um
3: okay, that ma- that makes a lot of sense, because, um, try as I might, it's very difficult for me to find a God and Satan story with any um, great amount of uh, information in the Old Testament. it's right. almost it's almost absent. i mean the the only place that really refers to a Satan as a a kind of individual, seems to be the Job story, which, interestingly, uh, Job, it says, was um, the greatest. I've got the scripture here. Actually, Job 1, 1 to 3. There was a man in the land of Uz whose name was Job. He was uh, upright, a man of integrity who feared God and shunned what was bad. And it says he became the greatest of all the people of the East. Mm. So the the one book in the Old Testament that tends to talk about Satan is actually um, based around an Eastern guy.
2: <laughs> That's interesting. Mm. It, it gets more interesting, Daniel, because the idea of hell, well, the idea of heaven and hell uh, as a place for souls to exist after death, that doesn't exist in Judaism. Right. Period. Period. Okay. They believed in a land of the dead called Sheol, and it was much like Hades. It was a land where the souls existed until until the end times, right? So, uh, And then, the, of course, the whole end times element is, all, is also read into that because the Greeks didn't have that exactly. You know, the, the ancient Hebrews didn't have that exactly. So that idea comes from Zoroastrianism, that w- if you are naughty, when you die, you're going to burn in hell for eternity. If mm. you're good, you'll go to heaven and, and, and live in paradise for eternity. That idea not biblical, not Jewish, comes from Zoroastrianism.
3: And this um, is, this seems to be a, uh, a bit of a pattern with some of the uh, Christian ideas, doesn't it? Um, e- even so far as things like the immortality of the soul and that kind of thing, mm. they tend to be more of a uh, find their, find their uh, origins more in mystical teachings than in the ancient Jewish texts.
2: Mm. Right. And, but there's a, there's a deep connection to Babylon because the Jews were captive there. Right. Absolutely. So yeah. so yeah. if you go, if you go back to Babylon, you're going to find things like ziggurat temples. Mm-hmm. If you've ever seen photos of them, the ziggurat of Ur, it still exists. It's, it's in ruins, but it still exists. A lot of people believe that was the Tower of Babel. Um. So you have a connection between Babylonian temples, the way they were built, and yep. the, sto- the story of the Tower of Babel. But even more than that, there there are these clay tablets, these uh, clay tablets that were written in cuneiform that talk about the – they're called the antediluvian kings list. So
3: Oh, okay. Yeah, I've been looking at that this last, last week. Time.
2: Okay. Absolutely. So they, had, they have them in Egypt, and they had them in Samaria and Babylon where the, mm. they would just write down, this king ruled from – you know, X date to X date, and there's twelve of them,
3: and it covers it's something like thirty thousand years.
2: Covers many, many thousands of years. So you, there's some parallels to how how people in the Bible were were um, supposed to have lived for a very long time. There's mm. there's some parallels, but they're even more exaggerated. Yeah. But here's, here's the thing about it: the twelve kings in this in the Sumerian and Babylonian kings list. I don't know enough to point to specifics, but I can tell you that scientists believe that those names of the kings correspond to the 12 patriarchs of Judaism, beginning with Adam and ending with Noah. And um, the Noah story, the flood story, also a Babylonian story. It comes from the Epic of Gilgamesh. So you have all of that that we consider to be, we hold near and dear to be Judeo-Christian, and they're they're not. They're Zoroastrianism and pre-Zoroastrianism ideas
3: and this makes this makes a lot of sense to me from the point of view that the Old Testament was actually written a lot later than it's said to have been, and in particular the torah which if you if you go by what the Torah says, uh the chronology places it somewhere around about fifteen fifteen hundred b c but modern scholars now think that the Torah was most likely pieced together. Um, in its current form, at least uh, around about 500 to 400 um, BC, which would be Persian times. Would. After they'd been in Babylon. So they would have picked up. Immediately, Babylon, after, right. immediately yeah. after. Yeah.
1: Yeah.
3: Um, and this is also the period where the redactors swapped out uh, the Canaanite El and El Elyon for Yahweh or rather conflated the two together mm. to end up with uh, one single god called Yahweh that is El or the most high whereas prior to that El and um or El Elyon and Yahweh would have been two separate gods mm. Yahweh would have been the um the son of El according mm. to Canaanite so it's interesting isn't it they they sort of start off with this Canaanite point of view They're they're a polytheistic religion, to start with, the Israelites. And then they make their way via, um, obviously, the northern kingdom of Israel. is taken into Assyrian exile, and then you've got the Babylonians that come along and polish off the Judean section and then assimilates the whole of the Assyrian Empire. Mm. You'd have ended up with um, Jews and Israelites being... Um, exiled, not not just in Babylon itself, but throughout the whole of Babylonia. So they would have been um, they would have been exposed to an awful lot of uh, Eastern teachings, wouldn't absolutely. they? Absolutely, absolutely. Uh, maybe even further afield as well. You know, sort, sort of edging towards uh, India.
2: So um, tell me, tell me if you don't want to go down this road, and I'm perfectly fine with it. But there's oh, no, something. Fine. In- yeah, go. Something that comes up that's connected to this, that's loosely connected to this. So, d- how much do you know, if anything, about the Pharaoh Akhenaten and the Hyksos?
3: Um, very little. Again, the Hyksos is what we think may have been the Israelites.
2: That's 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 what I want to bring up. That's exactly not, what exactly,
3: but not a three million odd people nation. Um, in slavery that ever made it through forty years in a wilderness, I believe it was a very very small group of people wasn 't it
2: It was, and there 's no evidence that they were slaves the, the evidence is that they were wealthy and that the that the Egyptians the proper Egyptians the ethnological egyptians the the ones from Egypt with Egyptian blood were none too happy about them and and ran them off because they were afraid right. that the Hittos were going to be were going to take over. Um, but I tell you that only because the word hyksos has a certain similarity to the word Hebrew, and they yep. were Semitic people, and the Egyptians fought with lots of Semitic people uh you know during the, the you know the, the ancient Egyptian period. And these uh these Hyksos people, um it they they have some connections to this pharaoh named Akhenaten. Now mm-hmm. Akhenaten is a very interesting character. He gets tied up with the ancient alien conversation for for a couple of reasons, most of which because if you ever see statues or images of Akhenaten, um, they're very strange and they have they have really elongated heads and, um, oh, ah, and yes. weird shaped bodies. Like the pharaohs, the pharaohs would be represented as. Ripped, right? Because they're they're god men, but but Akhenaten had a belly and a you know he had love handles and you know that's how they made him look. So I tell you that because I think it was Amenhotep the third was Akhenaten's father. Um, everybody knows Akhenaten, even though they don't realize it, because Akhenaten is related to King Tut. We all know King Tut, right? That yep. that was his that was his son, I believe. Mm-hmm. Um, Nefertiti being his wife, so everybody knows him. But what they don't know is that. Akhenaten's mother was from Sub-Saharan Africa. She was a black African, not a, not a not a Middle Eastern Egyptian. She was a black African and she had a different religion, right? She had a tribal animistic religion that worshipped um, like the great spirit, you would imagine, like, like Native Americans have a have a religion where they have a high God. This is what she believed. And so people think that when Akhenaten showed up on the scene and took over from his father, he immediately shut down all the temples in Egypt all of them. And he said, there is no Ra. There is no Osiris. There is no ISIS. There's only one God. His name is Aten. He's the sun God. And Ah, shut down all the temples, pissed the priests off. And back then they were very powerful people. The priests are like the oligarchs of Russia, you know, back then they're like wealthy and powerful and dangerous. And, and he just said, no, there's only one God. So earlier I brought up that, that Zoroaster may have been the first Prophet to say there is one God, but Akhenaten is, is in the is in the running. And if you go back and read prayers to Aten that are still there, you know in Amarna, they sound like Christian prayers. You cannot tell the difference between Akhenaten's prayers to Aten and a Jewish or Christian prayer.
3: Wow! And there's going to be. Um, I'm, I'm guessing the redactors later that that put together the Torah with the with the story of the slavery that wasn't a slavery and the Exodus that wasn't really an Exodus and the wilderness and all, all those kind of stories would be drawing on su- some of the sort of myths and fables they'd heard of. And I'm guessing Moses, who is their chief guy, he is going to get some connection here because it's Moses that, Kind of tries to introduce this idea of a singular God at the yeah, uh, at the burning bush. Um,
2: yeah, let me let me just let me just say something about Moses really quickly. Hmm. Um, Moses, Moses is a name that sounds a whole lot like Ramses. Ra is the god Ra Mose. And even in in Arabic now, Moses is called Musa. So so Moses may very well have been an Egyptian, Ramses. Mm -hmm. And there's great evidence to suggest that the the name Moses is really an Egyptian name. Um, And there really was an exodus, by the way. If we go back to the Akhenaten story, Akhenaten had to leave the capital of Egypt because he pissed off all the priests, remember? He had to build... (laughs) <laughs> he, had to build, he had to build a new capital called Amarna from scratch, hundreds of miles north up the Nile. He built a whole new city and moved his whole family there. So there really was an exodus, and there's connection that says Moses may have been Akhenaten, or Akhenaten ah. may have been Moses, or they may have influenced one another if they were if Moses was a historical character.
3: Yeah, I get I get this impress, impression that. All these stories are kind of influencing each other, and you end up with this mishmash of a story. And then some uh, fifth or fourth century BC um, scribe has sat down (laughs) with the with the task of trying to put this all together into a a legible kind of narrative, Um, with the purpose of obviously the um, the Persians of the time were big on repatriation; they wanted. They wanted the Jews to, you know, and the Israelites Alliance to go back to their homeland, but they're not just going to say, you know, go back to your homeland and uh, sort of make it up as you go along. They want to see, first of all, an origin story in print, and they also want a law, a set of laws, so that when they release the uh, exiles back to their homeland, it doesn't just sort of degenerate into um, into anarchy. Smart. so you've got a scribe there sitting there pulling up pulling off all these eastern stories and the egyptian stories from down in the south and putting it all all together into a, a nice little uh nice little torah for the uh <laughs> the jews to to live by and what amazes me as well is they went to all that ex they went to all that di- all that um extent to end up with a single God Yahweh to try and get get away from these Canaanite pantheons and the Egyptian gods and all the rest of it. Let's let's just stick with Yahweh, and then Christianity comes on the scene and introduces the Trinity, uh, Trinity again.
2: <laughs>
3: yeah, yeah. <laughs> it's kind of sort of messes it all up again. It? That's
2: pretty. That, that's a good point, Daniel. That's a good yeah, point. That's much it.
3: So that's good. I like that. Nice little trip down the uh, history lane there. Here's an interesting uh, little uh, connection you might have noticed before. In uh, Hinduism, we have uh, Brahma and his wife, Saraswati. Mm-hmm. Have you ever noticed how similar that is to Abraham and uh, Sarah?
2: I'm telling you, you completely blew my mind. <laughs> completely blew my mind. So I, I can show you this, but I don't know if you can see it on the notes for, that you sent me for the conversation today. Mm-hmm. That that section, I put a little note next to it. Wow, with an exclamation point. I never have never considered that. That is absolutely amazing to me. There, there's something to that. I don't know what, but there's something to that.
3: Uh, there is something to it. There's a guy I actually tweet uh, did a retweet this week because it was so good. If you go to my I Have Many Layers um, Twitter feed, you'll need to scroll down a little bit. But there's a guy called At uh, India Art History and he's actually posted a thread of um, the similarities between Abraham and Sarah and uh, Brahma and Saraswati.
2: I'm going to follow that guy for sure.
3: Yeah, so it's uh, at India Art History. So that's good. Um, So, yeah, I've been reading a lot about um, some of these connections between the East and uh, Israel. Um, I've just ordered a new book that I haven't started yet called God and Anatomy. Um, It's a really thick book. It's like kind of a thousand pages thick, I think. Um, And it's all about uh, Yahweh and El and Elohim and uh, Ashtoreth, which I think we were talking about. Um, Apparently Yahweh had a wife or at least a consort, called Ashtoreth, um, the fertility goddess.
2: So I don't know if you want to get me started on fertility goddesses. Um, <laughs> Go on. I have, yeah. one tat- I, have one, I have one tattooed on my arm, Daniel. Oh, very nice. <laughs> that's a, that's the Venus of Brass and Poi on my arm. Um, okay, so I don't know if you're a Dan Brown fan, but I was, um, during, during the heyday of Da Vinci Code and all that, I was a Dan hey, Brown fan but he was the first person that brought to my consciousness the idea of the divine feminine. And when it first got introduced to me, I wasn't sure about it. I thought, I thought to myself, why give God a gender? That seems strange. Calling God a man or a woman is, is wrong. Something's wrong about that, but calling God a man and presuming that there is no feminine aspect to God. It's also kind of wrong, you know, it's incomplete. So imagining God as both male and female it started to slowly make more sense to me. And I never realized that we cut out the feminine part of the belief system. And, you know, there's all sorts of things we can say about that, you know, the patriarchy and all that. But, uh, but at some point we did, we, we removed um, the feminine aspect from God. And if you go back historically, the feminine aspect of God has always been the paramount one it's always been most important because the feminine has well if the feminine has connections to creation we there's no argument there women have children and so the the earth mother or or the goddess that bore the earth was a woman w- w- the creative essence is a feminine essence and so it's also connected to our instincts and to the unconscious which is this mysterious thing we don't understand but that's where our consciousness comes from the unconscious so,
3: so you um you sent me an article actually which I devoured um about uh how the israelite uh, nation let's just take that one for a moment the israelite people their tribes originally started off as uh matriarchal not patriarchal mm. um basically the women were in charge and uh they had their various different tribes, and apparently, if I if I've got this right, what they did is they used to loan men from their tribe to other tribes to go and do a bit of hunting or warring or whatever. And while they were um, while they were on loan to uh, another tribe, they would actually get a temporary wife oh. <laughs> for six months or whatever. This was in that article you sent me. Um, so they'd be doing their their warring and they're sort of on a subcontract basis but they'd still have the pleasures of home uh, and when their time was up so it would be a contracted time you know 6 months or a year or whatever when they got home from war or from hunting uh, the when they the, the, the way they knew that their time was up was that their temporary wife would turn her tent around so that the entrance was facing the wrong direction <laughs> And that was a sign, uh, your time's up. You need to go back to your original tribe now. But when they got back to their original tribe, they often found that their their real wife was uh, with another guy from another tribe that was on loan. <laughs>
2: <laughs> so it's funny. I, I, I've been encountering this idea um, uh, recently. I've been reading a lot of um, Carl Jung's pupils. I've been reading a guy named um, Edward Ettinger, who wrote about Greek myths and their psychological meaning from a mm-hmm. Jungian perspective. And I've been reading a lady named Louise von Franz who does the same thing with fairy tales. And I've been reading Eric Neumann, who is basically young star star pupil. And uh, he wrote like the greatest book on Jungian philosophy uh, ever. It's called the origin and history of consciousness. It's amazing. And they, they talk about this, it's called exogamy and that's a word I've only ever seen written, but it's, When, when people, if you go back far enough in history, when tribal people lived in the early days in the stone age, they were matriarchal. Like you said, the women, the women, the women were the most well-regarded, um, people in the community because they had the babies, right? They had the babies. Um, it's hard to, it's hard to argue. That's the most important role in the, in the, in the tribe, right? Having more people, um, and so what, what they would do is they would have this process that we call exogamy, where once a man was of age where he was going to take a wife, you would get kicked out of the tribe. And it wasn't like you're shunned. It was like, go find a wife in another tribe. And that was done – well, it was a cultural thing, but you can imagine it was done to make the gene pool better right you yep. don't want you so you don't want to inbreed in your tribe for hundreds and hundreds of years that's not going to be a good thing so they figured out how to, the solution to that was to send their men away and they would go join other tribes and take wives and have kids and that was spreading out you know the gene pool so that's that's how things were when women ran the show <laughs> that's how <laughs>
3: and things then, were then gradually what's happened over time it's it became patriarchal mm-hmm um, so by the time you get into the Bible stories, it's all uh, the men are all in charge, aren't they?
2: Yeah, um, sorry, yeah. that, that Neumann fella has an ex. He has an explanation. He has an idea as to why things changed from matriarchy to patriarchy. Mm-hmm.
1: Uh,
2: he basically just says that men had to go out and hunt, and they had to they had to create communities with other men, and they had to live in a way that was Neumann describes it as more conscious, right? And, but in contrast to more instinctual, right? Women live in this highly instinctual world where they have to be attuned to the needs of the of their babies, certainly, but of the of the community. And it's almost like thinking is too; it takes too long. They have to be instinctual. They have to they have to act. You know, right? Where where men were were exposed to danger. They were out traveling, exposed to unknown dangers all the time. They had to form bonds with each other and learn about, well, whatever they needed to learn to be successful hunters and to not die. The women back home didn't have to do that. So men eventually created male groups that became more and more important. They're bringing back the meat. You know, they're they're bringing back new technology uh, because they're out there struggling against odds that the women aren't. And so they created a a powerful group that rose up and took over. Whether that's true, I don't know.
3: Interesting point you're making there between um, instinctive um, knowledge and kind of the the normal thinking wisdom Mm. idea. Yes. Um, It's often been thought that, you know, men think women feel. That may be a blanket statement across the board. I know as we go into uh, hermetic philosophy in a little bit, that there's one of the hermetic principles is that there is um, two genders to everything. So like you were saying before, when we think of God, you know, we should really be thinking of God as masculine and feminine, not one or the other that he has, or it has both sides of it. And I, I think what's happened in, um, modern society, Um, and hopefully this is changing a bit now, but certainly certainly, when I was growing up as a young fella, um, the male or masculine idea of thinking was always prioritised over the feminine idea of feeling, as if somehow it was better. Um, You know, I'm, I'm, I'm sort of of the... I've got a few years on you. Yeah, I'm I'm of the uh, I'm of the age when, you know, the men went to work and the women stayed at home and looked after mm. the babies. And um that's a very extreme view, isn't it? It's taking men and put putting them into a purely masculine role. Mm. Um and it's taking women and putting them into a purely what we traditionally think of as a feminine role. When in actual fact, there's masculine and feminine qualities to both men and women. Right. I mean, I am—I'm not ashamed to say—I'm very much in touch with my feminine self. You know, I mean, I'm a bloke, bloke. You know, with the beard. Mm-hmm. Yeah, yeah, you do.
1: And
3: um, but uh, I've always been um, more intuitive than thinking. Um, I don't know if that notices, but. I've often found that, uh, you know, particularly in the past, most of my friends have been women. I've normally got on a lot better with women because I'm able to talk about sort of feelings, hmm. whereas a lot of fellas don't actually discuss feelings, do they?
2: No, no, we pretend that we don't have them, Daniel.
3: <laughs> <laughs> yeah, no, I'm very, yeah, I'm very, uh, I'm very feely. uh We'll come to that one in a bit because uh, I want to move on if if it's okay, to this other book that I've been reading and it's called The Kybalion or Kybalion. Uh, We'll discuss a bit of that today. But can I just, before we go into this, this is about hermetic teaching. Can I just give you a rundown on a dream that I had?
2: Yes, please. Yes.
3: So um, I I had a dream. Um, It was all very weird and wonderful, like most of my dreams. But when I woke up, I had this, um, I just felt compelled to write down some thoughts about space and time. So just to put it in a nutshell, um, the way that we usually think of space and time, we think about space and time as being basically the same thing, just two different aspects of the same thing. And we tend to think of the first three dimensions as being spatial, don't we? right so you have uh, you have a plane uh forward and backwards you have a plane upwards and downwards and you have a plane left and right um and then the the fourth dimension is thought of as um time right so that that's the current view um and I'm okay with that Absolutely okay with that. But this dream I had suggested that we could look at space and time in, in another way. I'll see you. So um, if you start with, let me just start with you take a piece of paper and you draw a dot in the middle of the piece of paper, and this dot is not moving. The dot is just just there on its own. Okay? We can think of that dot as one-dimensional Um, We can think of that dot as an action or we can think of it as a conscious thought. But it's not going anywhere. It just is. It's it's just a dot on the page. Okay. so let's call that the first dimension. Now, rather than thinking of the second dimension as um, another spatial dimension, let's save that for a moment. We'll come back to that in a minute. Let's think of the second dimension as something which has an effect on the first dimension, that being time. Or as we look at the hermetic principles in a a moment, we'll think of it as vibration specifically. Mm. So what I mean by that is you take your dot and you move your dot, okay? And we'll give it a limitation. We'll say you're only allowed to move that dot forward. So let's, let's say forward. Okay, yep. you're not allowed to move it backward, only forward. What you've done there, you've introduced a second dimension, uh, albeit a very flat one. But you could actually start doing things with that. You could go around in a circle. Okay, or you could go in a figure of eight, hang on, figure of eight, like an infinity symbol. Now, notice as you do that, as you're moving your, your dot or your pencil in a figure of eight symbol, although you're only going in one direction, you're actually, you're actually alternating the direction. Same if you're drawing a circle. You're first of all going left to right, and then you suddenly find yourself going right to left. Yeah, right. Okay? So you've almost introduced, by, by introducing motion into it, you've almost introduced like a pseudo-backward you're not actually moving backward any more than you can naturally move backward in time. So what I'm suggesting here is you actually can't move backward in space. You can only move forward in space, but you can alternate the movement such that it gives the impression that you're going backwards. Sure. Now, if you you were to do that – that shape, again, with the, with the dot, if you were to move it up and then down and then up and then down and up and down, what you've just gone and created there by the use of time and the use of movement, you've actually created a vibration. Mm, that looks yeah. very much like a sine wave. Sure does. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Um, so that's 1D and 2D. We'll get onto that a little bit more later. So 1D is spatial, 2D is this introduction of time or movement, or we'll say a combination of time and movement is vibration, for want of a different word. So then 3D, let's say that 3D is another dot, but it's on a perpendicular plane. Okay. So 3D is a dot again. Introduce 4D that allows that dot on a different plane to move, to vibrate in a, in a particular plane. You only really need the two perpendicular spatial planes, um, 1D and 3D. You don't actually need a third spatial plane because 1D and 3D have actually got it covered. All you do is you just rotate it around whatever mm. axis you want to. Yep. So you don't actually need three dimensions of space what you need is two dimensions of space mm. and two dimensions of time to act upon those those two mm. dimensions of space interesting i don't so, know it just it just sort of came to me in this uh, dream it might be a load of rubbish but i wrote it down and um
2: so hold on wait wait on, yeah. so so okay so you have a 2d plane and you yep. pivot that you pivot that two dimensional plane any way you want and it's going to create 3d it's going to create three dimensions am i following you okay i like that it's interesting
3: yeah it's, it's interesting. like it's like when you buy something from amazon i bought something a while from well, a while back from amazon and it gave me the width depth and height yeah and uh they'd actually got the listing wrong <laughs> i was looking at this item and it said it was 35 centimeters wide and 15 centimeters deep, and I'm looking at this thing, and it wasn't, it was completely the other way around. <laughs> they've got their they've got their widths and depths mixed up here. Um, but actually, width and depth are actually the same plane.
2: That's interesting. It's i, height I never...
3: it's, it's height that is a different plane, width and depth just moves around the same plane.
2: Oh man, depth. I'm 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 literally, I don't know if you <laughs> notice, I'm literally drawing this out while we're talking. That's
3: it, yeah. <laughs> <So it's, laughs> so what I'm, what i actually what I actually sort of deduced from this is we don't actually need we don't need to think of space as three dimensional we need to think of it as two dimensional two separate planes mm. and then to act upon those planes we actually need two dimensions of space, not one um, so, and what you get from sorry what you get from that is uh, if you imagine um Moving around a sphere, yeah. Yep. If you've actually got a ball and you move move your finger around the circle of that sphere, you can actually um, end up moving in any direction you like without changing the direction that you're moving. Hmm. Sim- simply by coming back on itself and then going Red. the opposite way round, yeah, and then over, and then the other way round. Right. Um, so as long as you've as long as you've got those two planes, and you can introduce time, uh, space, sorry, time and movement on the two planes, you've you've pretty much got everything covered.
2: So uh, can I can dig into this time and motion because that's what's that's what's I'm having trouble wrapping my brain around right now. So I can see when I, when you were explaining to me one D and two D, yep. I, I picked up one D is static. And the yep. difference—the difference between one D and two D is motion. Yes. So, so that seems to require time. Motion yeah. seems to require time, and I'm not exactly sure why or what that means. But that's interesting.
3: Right. What that—what that means from a two-dimensional um, perspective of time is—is is basically what we experience in our in our four-dimensional existence. We can only experience um, time in one direction, Mm, can't go backwards. We have the impression that we can go backwards in space, but that can't be possible because space and time are completely interrelated. If you can't go backwards in time, you can't go backwards in space. So when we actually think we're moving backwards in space, actually what we're doing, we're still moving in the same direction, certainly moving in the same direction in time, aren't we? Yes, and it's it's just an illusion that we're moving backwards in space. That's interesting. What, we, what we've done is basically loop back on ourselves. Yeah, yeah. To go backwards. What we haven't done is stop, disengage, come back, and then move backwards. We can't do that. We're, we're kind of trapped in this constantly forward movement, whether that's spatial or or time.
2: So let me ask you this question. I'm, I'm conflating motion and time in in a very difficult way in my mind, and this is what this is what I want to ask you about. I, I think about time yep. as a record of change. So time yes. time is transformation. Yes. Um, that's what we mean. Because if I you know it's like what's different between one moment and, and another? Well, it's a different moment, and, and everything's different. Everything, everything is constantly changing, so time seems to be a measurement of change, and I'm not sure what else it is you know
3: okay what i'll what I'll just do um we it, we're gonna move on to hermeticism in a little bit, yep, and there are seven principles of hermeticism i'm just gonna I'm just gonna jump to the one that that fits this, okay, right. so there is. Let me just find this. There are seven principles in Hermeticism, which we'll come back to in a minute. We'll discuss what Hermeticism is. But one of them is the principle of uh, vibration. Okay. I'm just going to read you something from um, the Kabbalion. Uh, under the heading of Dimensionality and Planes, which is Mm. interesting. So bear in mind, I'd had this dream about planes and vibration before I'd started reading the Mm, Yes. And then I started reading the Cabalion, and I thought, blow me, (laughs) that's exactly what I've just had a dream about. So it says, um, at the beginning, we may as well consider the question so often asked by the neophyte, who desires to be informed regarding the meaning of the word plane, which term has been very freely used and very poorly explained in many recent works upon the subject of occultism. The question is generally about as follows. Is a plane a place having dimensions, or is it merely a condition or state? We answer, no, not a place, nor ordinary dimension of space. And yet, more than a state or condition. It may be considered as a state or condition, and yet the state or condition is a degree of dimension in a scale subject to measurement. Mm. Somewhat paradoxical, is it not? But let us examine the matter. A dimension, you know, is a measure in a straight line relating to measure, etc. The ordinary dimensions of space are length, breadth, and height, or perhaps length, breadth, height, thickness, or circumference. But there is another dimension of created things or measure in a straight line known to occultists and to scientists as well, although the latter have not as yet applied the term dimension to it. Bear in mind this was written in 1907. (laughs) So the idea of uh, time being a fourth dimension hadn't yet been considered, I don't think. So it says uh, the latter has not yet been applied to the term dimension. And this new dimension, which, by the way, is the much-speculated-about fourth dimension, is the standard used in determining degrees or planes. This fourth dimension may be called the dimension of vibration. It is a fact well known to modern science as well as to the Hermeticists, who have embodied the truth in their third Hermetic principle that everything is in motion, everything vibrates, nothing is at rest Mm. from the highest manifestation to the lowest. Everything and all things vibrate. Not only do they vibrate at different rates of motion, but as in different directions and in a different manner. So, we've got this idea of The different different directions, the sine wave, the up and down, if you will, from the highest manifestation to the lowest, everything and all things vibrate. Not only do they vibrate at different rates of motion, but as in different directions and in a different manner, the degrees of the rate of direction uh, of vibrations constitute the degrees of measurement on the scale of vibrations. In other words, the degrees of the fourth dimension. And these degrees form what occultists call planes. Hmm. The higher the degree or rate of vibration, the higher the plane, and the higher the manifestation of life occupying that plane. So that while a plane is not a place, nor yet a state or condition, yet it possesses qualities (coughs) common to both. We shall have more to say regarding the subject of the scale of vibrations in our next lessons in which we shall consider the hermetic principle of vibration. Hmm. Isn't that good?
2: That is good.
3: Do you need to get that?
2: No, no, it was actually, it was my alarm for reminding me of this podcast.
3: <laughs>
2: <laughs>
3: so can we unpack that a minute? Basically what we're saying is that there are dimensions of space, spatial dimensions, but they only really exist if you take a static point and add motion or time or vibration to it, that's it's so interesting.
2: What it's so interesting, it's and then like... it
3: exists as a plane. So we call that two dimension. And I'm I'm positing that there's also a third and fourth dimension that are perpendicular. That might just I might just be repeating myself there.
2: But. Yeah, yeah. So it's so it's it's almost like. It's almost like motion creates space. And I, I I don't know if I'm conflating the word plane and space, but it's like, whatever it is, I think,
3: I think they work well together. Absolutely.
2: And there's a, I think I may have mentioned this to you before, but there's a guy that works. His name is Robert Dijkgraaf. He's a physicist that works at, um, uh, in Princeton, I believe. And uh, he says that he believes space might emerge from entanglement. So, You know, there's a whole question there when we start talking about quantum entanglement that we that could get us in the weeds um, in terms of vibration and waves and all that sort of stuff, because that quantum physics is chock with that. But he he believes that something to do with entanglement creates what we call space, the planes that allow motion. And that doesn't happen without without time. You know, motion requires time. And so there's this it's difficult for me to. After this discussion, it's difficult for me to make a distinction between motion and time. Yes. And and space for that
3: matter. Yes, and space for that matter. Um, So, as as we move into the Hermetic principles, the first Hermetic principle will be, uh, when we get to it, um, the principle of mentalism, which is basically that everything that exists is a product of mind, of consciousness. Now we've discussed before that consciousness or the type of consciousness that we're aware of is one thought following another in a usually speaking forward momentum, albeit that's very conceptualized, but um, conscious thought involves change. You have a thought, you have another thought, you have another thought, you have another thought. What you've just done there. You've created space. There's (laughs) gaps, or want of a better word, uh, troughs and peaks. Yes. Between this thought and the next thought and the next thought. Mm. Even if it's only conceptually, you've gone and created space. And if you've created space, you've created time because the two are completely interlocked.
2: That's That's amazing.
3: Space and time and direction and planes and the vibration and everything is is to me it's evidence that there is a higher um a higher being a higher consciousness from which all of this is arising
2: well, I tell you what that helps me to do it help it helps me to conceptualize something that i'm very interested in, but I can't really conceptualize very well and it's the idea well it's about idealism that we've talked about it's, yeah. it's the idea that everything is mind yeah so so I try to imagine. What does that mean? How is that possible that you know does that mean that matter, space and time is a thought and a thought in what you know and a thought in God you know it's like it's a very very convoluted little little exercise no, but, I think I think you're on I think you're on the right lines there. I yeah. really do think
3: you're on the right lines there
2: what what you just said is that simply by having a thought what you, what you have is like a cascading domino effect of change, of transformation. And yep. if that transformation manifests as space and time, then I understand Bernardo Castrop saying everything is mind that, that makes sense in a strange way. And you help me with that, man. I appreciate that.
3: Thank you. Well, I'm, I'm, I'm glad, I'm glad it has. Cause <laughs> I come up with these little ideas and they're not quite as eloquent as uh as the way that you often put things, but if you can get that, and that's that's been of any use, that is brilliant. Um, let me just uh, let me just introduce this idea of Hermetic philosophy, um, and particularly this book, the Cabalian, that was uh, written around about 1908, I believe. Um, so the full the full title of the book is "The Cabalian: A Study of Hermetic Philosophy of Ancient Egypt and Greece." Bit of a mouthful. Published in 1908 by uh, anonymously, actually, by the three initiates, um, which has often been identified as uh, a guy called William Walker Atkinson, who may or may not have been a Freemason. Uh, somebody the other day said, well, you don't want to read the Cabellion. A Freemason wrote that. And I said, um, why, why should that be a reason to disregard it?
2: Good question. What did they say?
3: Well, they said that the Freemasons sort of do a load of sort of wacky shit, and uh, <laughs> you know, there's a lot of weird stuff going on, yeah, um, yeah. and some of it may not be true. And I said, well, that may be tri- That may be the case, but that that doesn't mean that just because a Freemason wrote a book, if indeed it was a Freemason, that there isn't some truth in it. Um, I tend I tend to base whether it's truth these days on when I read something, is it, does it instinctively speak to me? Yeah, And I'm I really don't, I really don't care who's written it. You know, it, you. I really don't, I really don't care that at all. And that even, that even goes, even though I'm no longer an, uh, a Jehovah's Witness and I'm no longer in what I consider to be a cult, there are still things that I learned as a Jehovah's Witness, things that were written in Jehovah's Witness publications that I've learned from sure. and that I look at and I say, well, I think that's true. Mm. You know, same with the Bible as a whole. There's certain things I look at and I think, no, that's nonsense. But other things, that's there's truth there. Absolutely. So, um, yeah, published by uh, this guy. It may or may not have been a Freemason, may not have even been him. It was published anonymously. Um, William Walker Atkinson was an occultist, which, as a Jehovah's Witness, we used to shy away from occultism because it was thought of as uh, demonism. Yeah, yeah. Uh, but this week, I just realised that I'm an occultist.
2: <laughs> yeah, I guess, I guess you and me both.
3: Yeah, so uh, that's good. Um, basically, he was a lawyer. Um, he got interested in Hinduism which I found interesting. Mm -hmm. Um, And he started introducing a lot of the Oriental occultism to the West. Um, And there was a movement that he was involved in at the time known as the New Thought Movement, which was a spiritual movement that coalesced in uh, America in the early 19th century. And it basically combined... um, Ancient Greek, Roman, Egyptian, Chinese, Taoist, Vedic, uh, Vedic uh, Hindu, and Buddhist cultures, and trying to basically find the the beliefs that sort of overlapped in those different.
2: Uh, do, do, you find, do you find it interesting that that happened in a? What you say you say in America that new thought movement was big here in the U.S. Do you, yeah. do, you do you find that to be coincidental? Like this this melting pot place where we live. No. Uh, no, I,
3: I don't. The um, It's interesting that the Jehovah's Witnesses, uh, they weren't known as that at the time. They were called the Bible students. Mm. Charles Taze Russell was round about that period as well, 1870 mm. through to he died, 1916, I think. You've got Ellen White of oh. the uh, Adventists. Mm. Um, Mormonism?
2: Joseph Smith, yeah. I think that was early 1800s, yeah. mm
3: Yeah, there was quite a big revival into sort of weird spiritualism, Mm. wasn't there, at the time. I know there was a lot of, um, certainly Charles Taze Russell was big on pyramidology and, uh, yeah, and the Millerites are the other other ones that the Adventists kind of grew out of the Millerites. They were very big on numerology, weren't they? Mm. Mm-hmm. Um, I kept setting dates for the end of the world, and then being right. yeah, yeah, yeah. Uh, greatly <laughs> disappointed. Yeah. Um, but I, I think there was something there insofar as people were searching. They were searching, you know. I mean, even Charles Taze Russell, the founder of the Bible Students, for a period went off looking at Buddhism and Hinduism.
1: Mm-hmm.
3: In the end, he came back to Christianity, but he kind of formed his own sort of version of it, which had a lot of numerology and pyramidology in it.
2: So I, I don't want to go too far off the topic, but I want to bring something up that I brought up to you before. And tell me if you see the link here. Um, if somebody studies world religions and picks and chooses the things that um, speak to them, like they're, like you said, if you intuitively agree with something or it okay. speaks to you, it calls out to you, then you want to adopt that. Um there's like a discernment that happens where you as an individual only on that level get to decide if it's compelling to you if it yeah. if it you know if it's if it speaks to you and it's connected to something i brought up to you before when i was talking about morality and jordan peterson's take on morality where he says every decision you make is one choice against an infinite number of alternatives and so you there's discernment involved whereas an individual you're saying I believe this decision is the best of all possible decisions. So it's actually every choice you make is a moral act. Yeah. And I, th- I think there's a connection between the type of discernment you're making when you make any decision and the yep. kind that you, that you described when you're, when you're cherry-picking those little nuggets of wisdom from all the different traditions.
3: Yeah, and I think, uh, well, I, I know for a fact that um, when I was in a cult, because we were taught that, Only we had the truth. It was highly discouraged to pick a mix. Yeah, Um, you you could not go outside the bubble that was Jehovah's Witnesses. Um, If you started reading, even reading about Hinduism or Buddhism or something like that, people would give you a sideways look. Why would you do that? Because we've got the truth. Why would you look at you know? it always used to get me a bit because uh, I used to do uh, door-to-door preaching. You know, I'd go to the door and say, good morning, I'm a Jehovah's Witness. Um, and I'd encourage people to read our literature. And quite often people would would say, oh, okay. And they'd take the literature. And then they'd say, just wait there for a moment. And they'd nip indoors. And they'd come back with a little pamphlet from their Buddhist temple or Hindu <laughs> temple or the their, their Pentecostal church or whatever. And they'd want me to read their information. Yes. Yeah, swap. And I always used to feel bad because we were told as Jehovah's witnesses. No. Why would you want their apostate lies? We've got the truth. <laughs> and it's a very narrow view. It's a very, very narrow view, I believe. Absolutely. Um, and I think since I've left... Um, I've learned a lot from Hinduism. I've learned a a lot from Buddhism. That's not to say that I'm a Hindu and that I accept the whole thing. I don't. Um, But there's certain elements of Hinduism that really resonate with me. And I think, yeah, I believe that.
2: If you had to pick an existing religion, Mm -hmm. if you pick one that most closely aligns to your beliefs, would it be Vendanta Hinduism?
3: Yes, I I think it would. and Particularly the Advaita um philosophy the um not sure if i've written anything down on that or not oh, the, right. let me just have a quick look uh,
2: the kind of stuff that you read in the upanishads you know
3: yeah the advaita uh, here we go uh, the advaita um the advaita uh philosophy is basically It's a non-dual form of Hinduism. Mm. So it doesn't attempt to say that there are many and we are all one. It's actually the opposite of that. There is only one. And the many that comes from the one is just an illusion.
2: Yeah. Effectively.
3: Yeah. Um, And I I buy into that, I think.
2: Yeah, Um, I agree. I I agree. Yeah.
3: So um, the... uh, the new thought movement that Atkinson was a, uh, a proponent of at the time it had four main main beliefs. Uh, number one was that God or infinite intelligence is supreme, universal, and everlasting. I, I can buy into that. Absolutely, yeah. Um, number two, divinity dwells within each person. All people are spiritual beings. Yep. Yeah. Yeah. Good with that. (laughs) Number three, the highest spiritual principle is loving one another unconditionally and teaching and healing one another. Yeah. Yep. Golden rule. Yeah, that's right. And then uh, number four, our mental states are carried forward into manifestation and become our experience in daily living. Say that again. Our mental states are carried forward into manifestation and become our experience in daily living.
2: Love it. Love it. That's panpsychism, man.
3: (laughs) Panpsychism, law of attraction, whatever you want to call it. Yeah. Um, The Kybalion, the actual book that Atkins or whoever it was wrote, he actually (laughs) said, uh, according to the teachings, the passage of this book is for those ready for the instruction. It will attract the attention of such as and when they are prepared to receive the teaching. And likewise, when the pupil is ready to receive the truth, then this little book will come to him or her. Such is the law. That's good, isn't it?
2: Do you, do you feel like that's the case for you, Daniel, that, uh, that you, were, you were introduced to the, those ideas that got you further along your spiritual path right, when you, right when you could digest them?
3: Yeah I've uh, I've got a, a good friend on Twitter called Peter uh from Australia and uh, hello Peter um he's been banging on at me for months and months about the Kybalion and the emerald tablets of Foth or something oh yeah and, uh, <laughs> yeah. and I, it's kind of been <laughs> over my head um but I've been kind of piecing together these these different sort of principles: mentalism and correspondence, and vibration, and polarity, and rhythm, and cause and effect, um, and gender. Mm. And unbeknownst to me, that actually is the basis of Hermeticism and mm. uh, the basis of this book, The Cabalion. And just the other day, you sent me a link to the Cabalion, and I started reading it, thinking, "Hang on a minute." <laughs> Did I write this? <laughs> it's like it literally is when you're reading it. It's like it's it's almost like something you've written yourself. It's that it, it, it speaks to you that closely. And I think when that occurs to you with a book, that is life changing, isn't it?
2: Absolutely. Yeah, it happened to me, happened to me with Maps of Meaning, uh, Jordan Peterson's book, and also okay. that Neumann book. Yeah, mm.
3: Maps of Meaning. That's one for my uh, one for my list. Yes. So shall we um, shall we work through the Kabbalion, and just the seven principles? Um, I think so,
2: yeah. Because I want to I want to actually talk about the Emerald Tablet of Hermes at the end, if we can. So uh, oh, as long as very good, okay,
3: yeah. So uh, we'll come back to Hermes and the Emerald Tablet at the end. Yes. So uh, the Hermetic wisdom that we're going to be speaking about basically comes from this guy called Hermes, and. Uh, We'll come back to who he was a bit later. But just sticking with the book for now, the seven principles are mentalism, correspondence, vibration, polarity, rhythm, cause and effect, and gender. Okay. So the first one, the principle of mentalism embodies the truth that all is mind that the all is the substantial reality underlying all outward manifestations. And this principle explains the true nature of energy, power, and matter. And I think this, I've heard you say a lot of times, all is mind. And I've made a connection between mind and energy frequencies, if you will, and Mm -hmm. matter. And I often talk about it as the divine matrix
2: Yes. Yeah, I, do, I use that phrase too. Um, the the matrix of being. Sometimes that's mm-hmm. what I'll say. Yeah. Mm-hmm.
3: Yeah, and it's like um, it it sort of pictures in, in in my mind. I get this picture of a kind of grid, or a web, or a mesh, which represents, I suppose, uh, consciousness, if you will, or mind. And then somehow it's kind of the the actual thoughts that arise. It's like the the matrix actually being agitated
2: Mm. um,
3: or aggravated.
2: Yes. And, you know, something comes to my mind when I'm picturing the wave. Um, Mm. You know, you've talked about that already many times, but the uh, up and down, up and down, you got peaks and Mm trowels. And, uh, you know, it occurs to me that a peak and a trowel are opposites. And the separation of opposites is something that we continue to come back to when we're talking about God and creation, not only the creation of the cosmos, but the creation of consciousness, yeah. um, that the symbol there is the orboros, the uh, union of opposites, and that you can see it in the wave pattern. And if you plug me up to a brain scan, the name of which I can't, it can't come up with off the top of my head, but that's what you would see, right? That's what you would see. It's, just, it's amazing. That's it,
3: effectively. Um, I mean, it ties in, ties in with uh, vibration that we'll have a look at in a little bit as well. But, you know, this this sort of basic idea that underneath everything, there is uh, what the Kabbalion refers to as the all. Uh, I refer to it as source mm-hmm. or the whole. Um, and that is all there is in reality. There's basically two perspectives of looking at this there's the absolute perspective and then there's which is that there is only one all and then there's the relative perspective which is what we're more familiar with which is when we look at the all from different perspectives and we come up with a million different truths yes and it just depends on what perspective you're looking at the thing you know but you are only looking at the same thing so basically energy is the same as matter is Absolutely. the same as time. Is the same as vibration. Is the same as the laws of forces. Hmm. One thing.
2: Do Do you remember when I brought up the analogy of the instrument playing itself? Yes. So I imagine that that matrix of being, um, call that space time, call that God, call that whatever you want. It's it's the thing that makes experience possible. It's potential, whatever that means. Yes. Um, that that plane that infinite plane um gets like you, you say agitated right it gets uh, uh energy moving through it and the waves moving and what i picture is the instrument playing itself right it's 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 god in yeah. the most abstract sense and the excitements of that of that um fabric whatever well, i don't know what word you want to use fabric, but the word yeah the excitements of that fabric are caused by the fabric, right? It's like it's yeah. the instrument playing itself, and it's and
3: animated. this is interesting because it has to be internal. There cannot be an external player, because if there was, that would be the the absolute, right? And then then you'd be saying, "Has this got a player?" Exactly, then that would be the absolute. So mm. basically, when when God, for want of a better word, or source creates, it's, it's a mental creation. It's, it's not using anything that already exists. It's not taking physical matter and forming it into something or taking a bit of itself and forming it into something. If it was to do that, it would diminish itself.
1: Right.
3: Um, that's not how creation occurs. Creation is a mental aspect. That's effectively what Hermeticism is saying. Is God's sport? Been... God's thought. Been... Yeah, yeah. Brilliant. Love that one. Um, number two is the principle of correspondence. Um, I think you've mentioned this one before, actually. As above, so below. As below, yes. so above. Um, there are planes beyond our knowing, but when we apply the principle of correspondence to them, we are able to understand much that would otherwise be unknowable to us. Uh, This principle is of universal application and manifestation on the various planes of the material, mental and spiritual universe. Um, the, uh, The ancient Hermetics considered this principle one of the most important mental instruments by which man was able to pry aside the obstacles which hid from view the unknown. Its use even tore aside the veil of Isis to the extent that a glimpse of the face of the goddess might be caught. Just as a knowledge of the principles of geometry enables man to measure distant suns and their movements while seated in his observatory, so a knowledge of the principle of correspondence enables man to reason intelligently from the known to the unknown. Studying the monad, he understands the archangel. This is effectively saying that if you want to understand a plane or a dimension or a level of existence, you effectively have to be at least one level above it. Mm. That's effectively what it's saying. You have to be on the outside looking in. Mm. So if we are indeed experiencing a having a four-dimensional, what we would call a human experience, at the very least, we must be five dimensional, extra human, in order to be able to experience that. Mm. and we we can't we can't actually experience our fifth dimension, our spirit dimension at this moment in time. Because we're having a human experience. Mm. But whoever is further up the chain, so a sixth dimensional being would be able to observe us. Mm. Right. A seventh would be able to observe the sixth and the fifth and the fourth. Yeah. Um, you can, you, can you actually mentioned to me the other day that there could actually be dimensional beings going infinite.
2: Well, there's a, um, there's a Native American phrase, and I think we've said it before. I think maybe you've said it as well, um, that it's turtles all the way down, right? Because of the, 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 I think the Iroquois or whatever, whoever it was, the Native American tribe had a, had a, a myth about the creation of the world. And then the, the question was, where did the earth come from? And they said, well, in the beginning, there was, just, there was just water. And the duck and all the animals took turns diving down to see if they could find land and bring it up. And each animal goes one by one and nobody can, nobody can go low enough to get the the earth. Finally, one of the animals manages to do it. He's the culture hero. He's the Jesus Christ character of the myth. And he brings up the earth and in order to make it the earth, he puts it on the back of the turtle. So the turtle's floating there on the water and the whole rest of the universe is built up on top and you get this fractal picture. Okay. Well, what's the turtle standing on? Yeah. He's standing on another turtle. What's yep. he standing on? Another turtle. And it's turtles all the way down. So I see this as um, as above, so below, as a fra- an understanding of the fractal nature. Of the I do as well. Absolutely. And, if, and if, if, yeah. if, we, if we say that God is unknowable or that the unconscious is unknowable and there's parts of our experience that we don't have access to, what what the Hermetic tradition says is you don't need to observe the unobservable just observe yourself and yes. everything you need to know about everything else because remember you are a fractal um a fractal representation, representation of the thing higher than you maybe that's the higher dimensional you and so on and so on and so on so all you have to know is yourself and that's just what the
3: ancient just know your higher self
2: know thyself that's mm-hmm. what the <laughs> great and if you know that then you know everything isn't that amazing?
3: And the way, the way to understand this, the way to understand this in, in, in simple forms, we were talking about a dot on a piece of paper earlier. Mm-hmm. That dot, which we'll say represents a one-dimensional being, has to exist in something. In this case, it's existing in a piece of paper. Yeah? Mm. Yeah. Um, and then within that thing, it can, then, it can move and exist within that thing and become a two-dimensional dot, for example. Um, we can do that. we can do that. We can draw dots on pages and move dots around pages because we're operating from a higher level right, right, yeah, from a plane that has at least that we know of four dimensions, either three of space and one of time, or as I've postulated earlier, two of space and two of time but we're in a we're we're operating from a fourth dimension, but for us to exist, we have to exist in a for want of a better word, a container dimension. Yeah. Um, Let's call it the fifth dimension. Now we might call that, um, we might call that uh, our higher self, but then that higher self has got to exist in something. Now we could jump directly to the sixth dimension and say, that's the absolute, that's, that's God. Right. But what if it isn't God? What if it is merely gods that, caused our being and then they are themselves within a seventh dimension which is the ultimate being or as you say within another and another and another it's um you don't need to know all the way up all you need to know is the level above you
2: yeah you know you know what's funny about this to me i don't know if i've ever told you this before but when people say god is infinite i agree with them but when you ask somebody what infinity is, we don't usually see eye to eye. I think infinity is a verb. I think I think it's an action word. That to, that to be infinite is an action. It requires something. It's not. It, it's not a given. Infinity doesn't exist. It has to be created. It has to be constantly created. So, so God is infinite, yes, in the sense that it's always transforming. It's always become becoming more and becoming different. Uh, does that make any sense to you?
3: It does. It, it, that might actually explain why. Um, See, so sometimes when we think of it, infinite, we think that infinite already exists. But it might be a case that infinite only exists when it needs to exist. See, there's, there's a paradigm. So if, if you reach a point where you say, ah, oh, I've found God, then there's another layer. Mm. And then you find that and you go, ah, there's God. And then there's yeah. another layer. Well,
2: there's a, there's, a, there's a paradox here. And every time I bump into these, I think there's something to it. That to, if I said God is infinite and that that's an action word, meaning that it's something that's continually um, being added to, let's say, that, there, that God is at once in this moment finite and infinite, right? Because yes. right, there's only so much even though it's continuing to grow at any moment, it's finite, you know? And people ask, if God is infinite, then why is the creation, why is the cosmos and our experience and everything that's ever existed finite? How is that possible? And the truth seems to be that it's both at once, you know? It
3: could could very likely be uh, like the Hindu philosophy of the serpent eating its own tail. Once you introduce you. a circle into the equation, it's it's it it it's both finite and infinite. Um, it has SDL, it has a SDL. beginning, but once yeah. it once it exists, it doesn't have a beginning. Bingo. <laughs> that may be that may be how it goes on. Maybe all those layers, all those uh, dimensions that we're speaking about, maybe they back in on themselves and. Maybe there is a, a case, uh, in fact, we come to it a little bit later, maybe there is a case to be said that um, God is breathing out and breathing in and there's a constant destruction and creation and destruction and creation, and that is what the infinity is.
2: I'm okay with that. I like that.
3: Okay. Right. We'll get on to that in a bit. Uh, number three is uh, the principle of vibration. Um, nothing rests, everything moves, everything vibrates. Um This principle explains that the differences between uh, manifestations of matter, energy, mind, and even spirit result largely from varying rates of vibration. From the all, which is pure spirit, down to the grossest form of matter, all is in vibration. The higher the vibration, the higher the position in the scale. The vibration of spirit is at such an infinite uh, rate of intensity and rapidity that it is practically at rest just as a rapidly moving wheel seems to be motionless. And when I read that, I thought, hang on a minute. I said that a few weeks back. I said about a bicycle wheel, if you're spinning a bicycle wheel and you stick your hand in it, it appears very solid.
2: Yes. Yeah, we did talk about that.
3: We did, didn't we? Even though it's like only 90% of a bicycle wheel doesn't exist. So the principle of vibration is that once you introduce movement into something, then you then you can start thinking about atoms and molecules, matter in general.
2: Right. So, so with a with a wavelength, you know, I've, I'm almost certain that the that this like the more tightly packed the wavelength is, the more energy it has. Right. So it's it's a lot more, a lot more ups and downs when, when, you know, there's more energy in it. And I wonder, I wonder if this principle of vibration is like, we differentiate the world based upon how much energy um, is in that wave. Um, You know, a wavelength that's, let's say the, uh, the color red, is a um a more densely packed wavelength than blue so that's how you get that's how you get diversity out of out of oneness let's say but because we know energy and matter are the same thing and that we exist in a closed system right energy can't be created or destroyed what directs the energy you know it's like what is causing more energy to go in one direction to become something and less energy to become something else is, is that random is it intelligent is it directed um, you know what I mean there's I have so many questions
3: it's um to, to use an analogy you were saying that the uh, the creator is rather like a musician playing an instrument um, I play the guitar and if you've got a guitar with six strings on it each of those strings vibrates at a different different frequency doesn't it um, on the door behind me you'll see uh, my chakras yes seven chakras um they represent the energy points within the human body starting from the root chakra at the bottom all the way up to the um the seventh oh. chakra which is the crown chakra and each one is actually a color hmm. and red is the lowest frequency working through to the highest frequ- frequency which is purple at the top um and it actually corresponds uh, mariella my girlfriend, hello, Mariella, Um was mentioning to me this week that uh, crystals, she does a lot of, uh, she's into crystals and healing and that sort of thing. Uh The crystals themselves, based on the color of the crystal, actually carries uh, different frequencies.
2: That's very interesting. I've always been one to write off that sort of thing, but I'm not sure I can make yeah. I'm not really sure I can write it off. I, you know, the the atoms the atoms in those crystals are vibrating. That's for sure. And yeah. what makes crystals unique is how evenly uh, formatted the atoms are. They're all stacked in very even r- rows, and so it gives them the structure that's special to a crystal. And they use crystals in all kinds of ways scientifically. So, mm-hmm. absolutely. You know, well, I mean, I have- even a simple thing like a clock.
3: You you have a quartz clock, which is right. based entirely on quartz frequencies. Right. Uh, which got me thinking, I wonder I wonder what would happen if you created a clock based on a different crystal. <laughs> I don't know, you'd probably end up with a a clock that runs fast. I don't Yeah, know. yeah,
2: fast or slow, yeah,
3: I don't know. <laughs> but yeah, it's um I I I was the same, Chris. I uh, I used to the idea of crystals, I thought, well a load of rubbish, if I'm honest.
2: Yep. Um no, no offense, Marielle, I'm on your side now.
3: <laughs> yeah we're converts uh, the, absolutely I mean the more that she's spoken to me about this um she's very intuitive you know we we're talking about intuition earlier uh she's an empath and she picks she picks up on energies of people um all that kind of thing and when she's in a crystal shop, it's like she can just feel all the vibrations it's like it's like the crystals are alive to her mm, that's um, interesting. There's, there's actually a bit in the uh in the Kibbalian book that says that um, crystals actually can be thought of as a, a form of life due to the frequencies that, that is in it.
2: Yeah. I mean, if you, if you can zoom down to the level of the atoms, you would not, you would not disagree that it's alive, right? Yep. It's, alive. it's moving around. Yeah. Um, and that,
3: That could actually then extend out to other things like plants, definitely animals. Um, I'll tell you something on, I've I've just started, just a little bit of a tangent here. Uh, I used to be the kind of guy that if a little ant ran across my um, desk, I wouldn't think twice about giving it a squish. (laughs) It's just an ant.
1: Um,
3: More recently, I found myself um, letting the ants go. To the point in my shower, I've now got um, even some little daddy long legs that have taken up residence in the shower and uh, I'm becoming a bit of a Buddhist. I'm sort of looking at all things that are alive and thinking, you know, they've got as much right as I have.
2: So it's funny you say that because I have had the same experience. Um, I yeah. am, so my grandfather my grandfather has a like a pet name for all the grandkids, and he calls me bugs because I'm not a fan of them. And uh, also, when I went hunting with it with my grandfather and my my uncle and my dad growing up, I uh, I got Lyme disease because I, I had so many tick bites. I was like you know I was like attracting them, you know. Um, so after in 2018, when I had my mystic experience, I started to see God in everything. And, yeah. and then if I would see a spider, generally, I would just kill it right away. You know, it's an existential threat. It didn't ask permission to come in my house and it's an existential threat to my children. I'm going to smash that goddamn thing. And, uh, now, now I, I can't, now I think you're yeah. going to you're going to crush this little experience that's just like you. It's, it's God's eyes looking out and seeing itself, and you're just going to end that? How dare you, you know? Yeah.
3: And where, where this is leading, and uh, I, I mean, I, I am not vegetarian at all. Um, I like my meat, but I'm starting to feel bad about eating meat. I'm actually, I'm, I'm kind of, I wish I didn't, you know, like to eat meat. Um, maybe that's something that I'll eventually kind of reach. You know, when I'm sort of eating a chicken, it, I'm looking at it thinking, "This thing was running around a few hours ago." Yeah,
2: you have you have fun with that. I uh, I'm not I'm not going there. I think that. <laughs> You have to, something has to die for anything to live everything is recycled by nature including life and uh in soul and so i'm perfectly happy to eat meat and i'm not going to stop
3: did you know did you know there's some uh, i can't remember who they are but there are some um I'm not sure if they're hindus or buddhists but they only eat um plants that grow above ground they don't eat root plants because if oh, you really? eat a root plant it's like you're killing the plant off
2: oh i see i see so they, yeah they don't
3: eat meat but they they also only they only eat plants that they can pick from
2: hmm. yeah that's interesting i wonder if they would eat eggs and milk because that's a renewable resource you know
3: hmm. i don't know yeah maybe i'll uh, start living on eggs um this principle of vibration, uh, this might be a discussion for another day. I don't know. Uh, but me and Mariella got talking about ley lines. I know a lot of people debunk ley lines. Um, but I read something that basically says that ley lines are like the chakras of the earth.
2: That's interesting, isn't it? I love so below, Daniel.
3: There you go. Right. Uh, principle number four. Uh, and I think you'll have something to say on this. Um, the principle of polarity. Now, it says in the Kabbalion that everything is dual, everything has poles, every everything has a pair of opposites. Like and unlike are the same. Opposites are identical in nature, but different in degree. Extremes meet. All truths are but half truths. All paradoxes may be reconciled. Um, I'm actually a non-dualist. So when I read that, I thought, mm, no, I disagree with that. Everything is dual. But a bit later in the Kabbalion, it actually says that the duality in the principle of polarity is actually an illusion. It's not actually duality. There is only one.
2: Uh, yeah, that, that's what I would describe to, yes.
3: Yeah. Um, so non-duality, as per the Advaita Vedanta, is the idea of non-secondness, the idea that Brahman alone is ultimately real, while the transient phenomenal world is an illusory appearance. The highest self and absolute reality is uh, non-different, and Advaita Vedanta adapted these philosophical concepts from Buddhism. Now, what I liked about this, that Advaita Vedanta uh, philosophy is from Buddhism. Is Buddhism doesn't entertain the idea of gods, and that's the one thing about Hinduism that I'm not really subscribed to—the idea of some thirty-three million deities being manifestations of Brahman.
1: Mm-hmm.
3: I, mean, I had enough. I had enough on my hands worshiping one <laughs> god. As a JW, you know the idea of worshiping thirty-three million of them.
2: So I yeah that's an interesting one I I, I may have told you the story before but the story of the buddha reaching enlightenment uh, he was meditating under the bodhi tree mm-hmm. and he's starting to get to the point where he's reaching nirvana and the he well Siddhartha was a Hindu, so it's important to realize that Buddha wasn't a Buddhist; he was a Hindu, just like Jesus was a Jew, you know. Oh, okay. And and the Hindu gods were attacking his spirit as it was ascending out of his body because they were trying to prevent him from becoming greater than that than they are. Right? He was he was ascending to something higher even than the gods. And what's so great about that story is that Buddhism teaches you that as a human being, you are greater, you have a potential greater than the gods. And so it requires an understanding of yourself as greater than, than the gods. I mean, um, I'm no stranger to, to talking that way. I think that, I think that I am God. I think that, that we are God um, yep. collectively. And, um, uh, and it, it, it reminds me of the way Carl Jung talks about the classical gods. He, he talks about classical gods as though they're psychological forces there are things that are common to every human being, which is why we believe we, where we used to believe that we inhabited a world full of these spirits, because everybody had the same spirits within them, and it was almost like this that th- there were spirits outside of us that were I- influencing us similarly. But in truth, there those spirits exist within us, and we are we are millions of gods, you know, uh, existing within this unity. Um I, I think there's a, some truth in that, you know?
3: There's a um there's a bit uh later which I just want to uh read to you that talks about involution and evolution that touches on that. Um I ha- again, I, the same as you. I have no no trouble thinking of god, gods, angels, different levels of spirit beings, uh, and so forth. I think where I where I couldn't subscribe 100% with Hinduism um, is the idea of actually worshipping these gods. You know, I can't imagine myself having a little shrine bowing down to Shiva or whatever um, because I don't think it's necessary. I think if if you understand that you are God, that you are Brahman and manifestation of Brahman, um, these shrines where you're worshipping gods, it, it might sort of get you so far. It might keep you humble up to a point. Right. I think once you get that spiritual awakening and you realize that you are God, that you are Brahman, and that we're all one, why would you worship?
2: Yeah, be, being humble doesn't work so well when you realize you're God, does it?
3: No, that's right. Yeah, So I'm going to worship myself. Yeah, it doesn't. It doesn't work. Um, and so you kind of you fall back into this rather, um, it's almost, it, it's not like I'm God, woohoo, aren't I amazing? Right. It's actually the opposite, isn't it? It's like, yes, I'm God. It's no big deal.
2: Yes, exactly. It's that's, the most mundane. It's the most common thing imaginable.
3: That's right. Yeah. So you don't need the gods anymore. We'll touch on that a bit later. Um, <clears throat> excuse me. So um, this idea of uh, polarity, you are like this. It says, uh, to illustrate heat and cold, although opposites, are really the same thing. The differences consist merely in degrees of the same thing. So cold is basically something that's not as hot. That's right. It's the same thing. And it even takes this as far as to say that good and evil are the same thing. Yes. It's just a degree of goodness, Um, which made me think in Hebrew... You'll often read in Hebrew someone saying in the Bible that they hated someone. Um, I think it was, um, was it Isaac that married two girls, Rebecca and Rachel and Leah? Uh,
2: that sounds right.
3: Isaac, or was it Abraham, Isaac? Oh, yeah, I, I think,
2: think it was. It was Abraham had Sarah and... Um, um,
3: Abraham, Isaac, and then Jacob, wasn't it?
2: Yeah, yeah that's right. One of, them,
3: one of them married Rachel and Leah.
2: Yes, that was... Ah, oh, boy, Isaac and Jacob. But Abraham had two wives, too, because because one of his sons became the Jewish people and the That's other right. son became the it. earth. Yeah, yeah. Uh, Hagar. 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 That's it. There you, go. Um, there you go. But
3: in the Hebrew, it says that he loved his other wife. Uh, well, it says he hated his other wife. And in mm. the Hebrew, it literally means loved less.
1: Mm. That's
3: all it means. Interesting. Hating yeah. someone just means loving them less. Um. um. And I just thought that was good because it ties in with that idea of good and evil or uh, love and hate. You know, it's uh, it's all the same same thing, just different degrees.
2: Right. Well, th- think about it. I mean, if you've ever had your heart broken, which um, um, both of us have, I'm sure, um, the people who you love the most, you know, those are the ones that hurt the most. There's there there's yeah. There's this far of a separation between hate and love, just this much, you know? There is,
3: yeah. And often relationships, like particularly really passionate ones like that, it's a job to tell when you actually hate or love them, isn't it? <laughs> it, <laughs> <Yeah>. is. <laughs> yes, it is. <laughs> it's kind of, um, very good. Uh, number five, the principle of rhythm. Now, I love this one because it says, uh, everything flows out and in. Everything has its tides. All things rise and fall. The pendulum swing manifests in everything. The measure of the swing to the right is the measure of the swing to the left. Mm. Rhythm con- compensates. So it's talking about this kind of um, ebbing and flowing. And I had mm. this thought this week. I've experienced a lot of loss in my life, huge amount of loss. Um, but if you don't lose something, you're not really in a position to gain anything. Mm. And there's often this thought that if you've you know if you hold on to something too hard for too long um the universe will find a way to make you lose it mm. at some point you know it's um because you can't you can't receive anything new if you've got a clenched fist mm. yeah, and by virtue of the fact that you open your your hand allows certain things to to go um yeah. there is this constant Ebbing and flowing. You know, it's uh, things coming into your life and things leaving your life, whether that's uh, relationships or possessions, money, friendships.
2: You know, that makes me think of Daniel as the people that say um, to empty yourself. You know, like Buddhists will say that em- empty your mind or empty yourself. So why do you want to be an empty vessel in order to be filled up with something in order you know? to be filled? Right.
3: Absolutely. Um, I mean, I, 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 kind of in the past I've looked at the loss that I experienced as a great tragedy and it and it was painful, very, very painful. Um, but I'm now kind of looking at at it as an opportunity because there's a lot of people that go through their 70, 80, 90 year life and they don't they don't lose anything, particularly they hold on to everything for their whole 70 or 80 years. And their life is very much the same. They have one life and they mm. reach the end of it, and then that's it in this life. Whereas I actually feel a little bit like at 50 years old, I died, and I lost everything, literally yes. everything. Yes. Um, and it's given me an opportunity to have a second life while still alive in this one. Yes. And that, I think, is, that is a privilege.
2: It is the point of life as far as I'm concerned. What you just described is the hero story. Yeah. Just like Hercules and just like Jesus, you were born again. That's yeah. what we said. That's what happened to yeah. you. It was a transformation, and it's just, it goes back to the as above, so below. God is transformation, and you, have, you are God. That means you have no choice. You must continue to transform, and when you fail to do that, you, yeah. you die. You're gone. You're done, man. So yeah. you did what you had to do, like a phoenix rising from its own ashes. It is. That's-,
3: that, that's, that's exactly what it is. And and the fact that I may, you know, hopefully have another 20, 30, maybe longer years in this life, Um, it's quite something that. it's It's like having a completely blank sheet, but having gained a huge amount of experience, mostly from knowing now what not to do. you know that those sort of things that i did before didn't kind of work out good that's right so i I won't be repeating that i'll probably make more mistakes new mistakes but uh, i won't won't be repeating the same mistakes and that just makes me feel uh like it's an opportunity i feel quite quite positive about that so the principle of rhythm is that Mm. one um On Twitter this week, I wrote a little tweet that said, Life, I have learned, is about loss. We must lose to gain possessions, relationships, even beliefs. Allow them to come and go to ebb and flow. To do this gracefully is the lesson.
1: Hmm. Yeah. Yeah,
3: Just... uh, Good. Uh, Number six, the principle of cause and effect. Um, I know you speak about cause and effect quite often. The hermetic teachings tell us that the higher planes dominate or have cause on the lower planes. Um, And that is often why the masses of people are carried along Obedient to the wills and desires of others stronger than themselves. That's quite Mm. interesting.
2: It is interesting. It reminds me of this thing I've been toying with. There's a word that comes up in Spinoza's philosophy called the canatus, a Latin word, and it's like the collective will, you know? And this is something that I've. Um, it's like we're we're moving as a culture. We're moving in a certain direction, and we're all participating in it, but none of us are leading it. You know, none of us know where it's going or why. It, that's what it reminds me of. It's like we, yeah. we have, you know, something like
3: yeah, that. Yeah, there's. Um, I mean, that can be a good good thing or a bad thing. I think sometimes what happens is you you end up with masses of people being moved along by some higher force um, that's above them in either some mental plane or spiritual plane that's higher than their kind of gross physical plane that they're working from. Um, and it becomes a matter of not thinking. Hmm. I just get moved along. Um, the Hermetic teaching says that there's bas- the three basic planes. There's a physical plane, a mental plane, and a spiritual plane. Hmm. And it just struck me this week that so many people today live purely from a physical plane you look at their Instagram accounts and all they're interested in is going to the gym, you know, having a beautiful body, yep. big, big lips, whatever.
2: Big lips, big butts.
3: Yeah. Yeah. Uh, I, I'm not decrying that. Great. No. But that is, that is only one plane. You know, there's so few people today, I think that think they don't have a mental life
1: hmm.
3: and they don't even they certainly don't have a spiritual life. So many mm. people eat, and I'm even including in that, the religious. Absolutely. They don't think, and they don't, they're do not they not spiritual.
2: Does it, does it strike you as uh, coincidental that that's sort of a trinity? <laughs> the yeah. physical, spiritual, the mental? <laughs>
3: yeah. <laughs> Very good. And then we've got the, uh, the final one, which is the principle of uh, gender, uh, which is what we were talking about at the beginning. But mm-hmm. uh, gender is in everything. Everything has its masculine and feminine principles. Um, you, anything to add on that one?
2: Do you see? I see that as very much related to the polarity. In fact, I see it kind of like the same, the same sort of thing. Yeah. You, with polarity, you have opposites in union, and that's what you see with um, the separation idea and the gender idea.
3: Yep. I agree. I agree with that one. Um. It just made a nice little thought as well that um because source or the all is both masculine and feminine, um we are never without a father or a mother. I thought that was a nice, yeah. nice thought. Um if I can just uh, if I can just make a few comments on uh involution and evolution Easy. and then hand over to you Uh, to talk about Hermes. Yes, okay,
1: all right.
3: So um, I wrote a poem, which I I shared with you a while back, called uh, God's Breath, if Mm -hmm. you remember that one, and it was talking about how God creates by breathing out and then breathing in, and and this kind of cyclic um, constant in and out in order to learn. And uh, the Hermetic um, principles talk about a process of mental creation. And uh, it uses a couple of words. It uses involution, which I um, think of that as synonymous with God breathing out, and then evolution, which is God breathing in. Hmm. So it, it goes like this. It says the hermetic teachings concerning the process of mental creation. At the beginning of the creative cycle, the all in its aspect of beingness projects its will towards its aspect of becoming and the process of creation begins. Mm. It is taught that the process consists of the lowering of its vibration until a very low degree of vibratory energy is reached, at which point the grossest possible form of matter is manifested. This process is called the stage of involution, in which the all becomes involved or wrapped up in its creation. This process is believed by the hermeticists to have a correspondence to the mental process of an artist, a writer or an inventor, who becomes so wrapped up in his mental creation, excuse me, as to almost forget his own existence. Mm and who, for the time being, almost lives in his creation. If instead of rapt, we use the word rapt, R-A-P-T, perhaps we will get a better idea of what is meant here. This involuntary stage of creation is sometimes called the outpouring of the divine energy, just as the evolutionary state is called the indrawing The extreme pole of the creative process is considered to be the furthest removed from the all, while the beginning of the evolutionary stage is regarded as the beginning of the return swing of the pendulum of rhythm, a coming-home idea Mm. being held in all the hermetic teachings. The teachings are that during the outpouring, the vibrations become lower and lower until finally the urge ceases. And the return swing begins, but there is this difference that while, while in the outpouring, the creative forces manifest compactly and as a whole, yet from the beginning of the evolutionary or in-drawing stage, there is manifested the law of individualization. That is the tendency to separate into units of force so that finally that which left the all, as unindividualized energy returns to its source as countless highly developed units of life, having risen higher and higher in the scale by means of physical, mental, and spiritual evolution. The ancient Hermeticists used the word meditation in describing this process of the mental creation of the universe. In the mind of the all, the word contemplation is also frequently employed. The idea intended seems to be that that of the employment of the divine attention. Attention is a word derived from the Latin root, meaning to reach out, to stretch out. And so the act of attention is really a mental reaching out, mm-hmm. extension of mental energy, so that the underlying idea is readily understood when we examine into the real meaning of attention. Um, nearly there. <clears throat> The process regarding evolution is that the all having meditated upon the beginning of the creation, having thus established the material foundations of the universe, having thought it into existence, then gradually awakens or rouses from its meditation. And in so doing starts into manifestation, the process of evolution on the material, mental and spiritual planes successively and in order. Thus, the upward movement begins, and all begins to move spiritward. Mm-hmm. matter becomes less gross, the units spring into being, the combinations begin to form, life appears and manifests in higher and higher forms, and mind becomes more and more in evidence. The vibrations constantly becoming higher in short, the entire process of evolution in all of its phases begins and proceeds according to the established laws of the in-drawing process. All of this occupies aeons upon aeons of man's time, each aeon containing countless millions of years. But yet the illumined inform us that the entire creation, including involution and evolution of a universe, is but as the twinkle of an eye. So do not feel insecure or afraid. We are held firmly in the infinite mind of all, and there is nothing to hurt us or to fear. There is no power outside of the all to affect us, so we may rest calm and secure. There is a world of comfort and security in this realisation. Once attained, then calm and peaceful do we sleep, rocked in the cradle of the deep, resting safely on the bosom of the ocean of infinite mind, which is the all. In the all, indeed, do we live and move and have our being. That's a long-winded. Basically what he's saying is that God comes up with an idea for a universe, breathes it out, and then he allows the whole thing to spring back through the process of evolution, development, and that we are basically making our way back home as spirits. Mm, That's effectively that. what you're saying, isn't it? Yeah, I love that. I love that, and I love that thought taken from Acts 17, um, that we actually move, live, and move, right. and have our being within within that source, that divine matrix.
2: Exactly. So, so I picked up on something in the beginning that you said. You said that um, something like being plus yep. will equals becoming. And uh, becoming is what we experience. That's what our experience is. It's a transformation. Um, So I wonder if, you know, being like the matrix of being right, that the the thing that um, makes experience possible, that's the thing that I would call potentiality or God. Yeah. And but but that requires God requires a will, a desire, a something else in order to. Transform in, in order to become being, yep. and so it occurs to me that that will idea is related to attention, which we brought up earlier, or you brought yep. up earlier, focused consciousness, and also energy and vibration. Yep. And so it may be that that's the mechanism yep. that the that the will of God, whatever that is, is what's moving that fabric. It's what's yes, and it's effectively
3: bringing the whole of the seven principles together into this this. It is a creative process, and that will that you refer to, Chris, is not an external will that is right. willing God to act. Because if there was an external will, that would imply that the will was higher than, right, the source. Right. Yeah. So this is this is an an inner yeah. will, a will being, is- a, a, just a basically God creates because He creates. Mm. That's it. There's no other reason. That's it. It's not because someone's telling him to create. It's not because he's lonely. Right. Yeah. It's not, it's not because he has to create. He creates because he creates. That's right. And I I think that's, you know, that, that basically comes down to uh, when you write a piece of music or poetry, people say, why did you write that? I
2: just. (laughs) Good question. Yeah.
3: (laughs) So that, that's the seven principles. Now, You've got something to say on uh, Hermes himself, haven't you? Where, yeah. where does Hermes come into this and hermeticism? comes
2: it's, into it's this? a great question. So it's a great question. So um, what you what you just what you and I just read or what we were discussing with K- a or whatever, however you pronounce that, that's a relatively recent work, but one that's based that has ancient roots and it goes back to. Um, I mean, Hermeticism goes back to the Greek god Hermes. That's where her, the word Hermeticism comes from, Hermes. And what people should remember about Hermes is that he's the messenger of the gods. He's he's the intermediary between man and the in the heavenly realm. He brings the messages. Well, that's what a prophet is. You know, so Hermes is a religious figure, and he's one that connects m- the divine to the, to the material world, to you and I. And um, so he's connected to a wisdom tradition that, that goes way, way back. And the and uh, the, there's a connection between Hermes, the god, and Toth, the Egyptian god of wisdom.
3: Oh, is it Toth? I keep calling him Thoth.
2: I, I did too for a long time. Yeah, Thoth. Um, okay, will go with Toth. Yeah. And if you look at an image of the Greek god Hermes and you look at an image of Toth, what you will see is that Hermes carries this very particular looking staff – and so does so does Toth. Otherwise, they don't look anything alike. But the ancient Greeks and Egyptians they connected those two gods, and they did that with lots of gods. It was it, it, they recognized when they encountered each other. Oh, we're worshiping the same gods. We just call them different names. And that's fascinating, by the way. But um, so what? So what happens is in ancient, uh, in ancient times, there was these, these wisdom traditions, um, that the priests and the, um, uh, shamans and stuff carried from a- ancient prehistory into the, into the early days of civilization. And it was secret knowledge, you know, the type of stuff that we would see later on with the Gnostics and the mystery religion, including Christianity. And so, um, there There are all kinds of writings that are occult type writings they have to do with alchemy, they have to do with magic they have to do with ritual and it 's these secret things that were passed along um you know in the ancient world between the no, the um, the the wisest people in those in those cultures and One of the things that was written is called the Emerald tablet of hermes mm-hmm. and if you If you hear Hermes talked about in this context. He's called Hermes Trismegistus, Hermes the Thrice Great. Some people say the Thrice Great part is a uh, is a reference to the Trinity. I don't know if that's the case. I just read read that somewhere. But the Emerald Tablet of Hermes is interesting, and it's not long. We uh, we can read it um, very quickly, and I want to. It's only 12 lines long. Please. Yeah, um, yeah there are. And this is tr- – so,
3: so let me just get this right a minute. Hermes Triste.
2: Trismegistus.
3: Trismegistus was saying is whether or not he was real or legendary. He was. He started out life as a a a Greek person in their mind, someone who had wisdom and he was a prophet and so on. And then from that idea, we get the idea of Hermes the god and Toth the god.
2: Yeah, that's a, that's a, that's an interesting question. So I don't know. I don't know the historical answer to that question. I don't think Hermes Trismegistus was thought of as a as a person, um, apart from the Greek god Hermes. I think that they're the same being. All um, right. Okay. But Hermes Trismegistus is. Um, well, it's just like um, it's just like when we talk about the Bible and we say that God gave the. The scripture to human beings, or that like the god Shamash from ancient Babylon gave the, the code of Hammurabi to Hammurabi. It's like that. Hermes gave the Hermetic tradition, the wisdom secrets to people, and they kept these traditions going. And there's all kinds of translations, uh, all kinds of texts that go way back to like the 3rd, 4th century BC. They go all the way through the Middle Ages. So this tradition is connected to medieval alchemy just as much as ancient philosophy. So it's
3: like a a kind of messenger or a word, if you will. Yes. Okay.
2: And and what's interesting is this particular tablet, um, it has, I'm looking right now on my other screen, there's translations from Arabic, there's translations from uh, Latin. There's translations from Isaac Newton, by the way, um, Phoenician, uh, Chaldean. So there's all kinds of references to Emerald Tablet, and they go back. I tell you this because there's not. It's not clear how old it is. It could. This could be very, very ancient. And uh, Isaac Newton himself actually translated this. So I'm going to read for you. Um, I'm going to read for you a hodgepodge um, because there's so many different translations. I sort of pick and choose the ones that I want to bring to you, but it goes like this. Um, Here is that which the priest has dictated concerning the entrance of Balinus into a hidden chamber. After my entrance into the chamber where the talisman was set up, I came up to an old man sitting on a golden throne who was holding an emerald tablet in one hand. And behold, the following was written thereon. So now, so this is the stage being painted. This person goes into this hidden crypt, this hidden chamber, and he sees this ancient statue, and it's holding this emerald tablet. And here's what it says. Here is a true explanation concerning which there can be no doubt. What is above is like what is below, and what is below is like that which is above, working the miracles of one. One. As all things were from one, and as all things were made from contemplation of one, so all things were born from one adaptation. Uh, And things have been from this primal substance through a single act. It is the main principle of the world and its maintainer. And as all things have been and arose from one, by ye meditation of one. And so all things have their birth from this one thing by adaptation. I actually read three different translations of the same line for you. That last one is Newton's translation. And it says, Its father is the sun, and its mother the moon. The wind has borne it in its body, and the earth has nourished it. It is the father of all works of wonder in the world. Its power is complete a fire that becomes the earth. Separate the earth from the fire. So you will attain the subtle and more inherent than the gross with care and sagacity. Um, Hold on. I got a scroll. If cast to earth, it will separate earth from fire, the subtle from the gross. It's force or power is entire. If it be converted into earth, With great capacity, it ascends from earth to heaven. Again, it descends to earth and takes back the power of the above and the below. Because the light of lights within it, thus does the darkness flee before it. This is the force of forces which overcomes every subtle thing and penetrates into everything gross. Thus, the world was created. The structure of the microcosm is in accordance with the structure of the macrocosm. And accordingly, proceed the knowledgeable, and because of this, they have called me Hermes Trismegistus, since I have three parts of the wisdom and philosophy of the whole universe. And this is the last book which he concealed in the chamber. That's it. That's the. That's the. Wow! Episode. Wow! <laughs> wow. What, did you latch um, on to anything
3: particular? I, I did. Uh, so, as you were reading that, I was relating each of the parts to the seven principles.
1: Mm-hmm.
3: So you've got very much there. I mean, it starts off with the idea as above, so below. Mm-hmm. You've got your different planes, your different dimensions. Um, you've got, um, it talked there about everything coming from the one. Mm-hmm. There is only one. I thought right. that was good. Um, the father and the mother. Uh, yes. And it, it likened that to the sun and the moon. That was interesting.
1: Yes.
3: So we've got the the idea of uh, gender working mm. through everything yes. creation and uh, being born mm. <clears throat> i love that um it, it also used the word manif- um meditation there didn't it yes it used contemplation uh, meditation a Kabal- Kabbalion book it was talking about this meditation almost as if god going into a meditative state
1: mm.
3: breathing out taking a taking a moment and then breathing in and then it it also, the emerald tablet there is uh, talking about everything evolving from the grossest point going back spiritward.
1: Mm.
3: That's yeah. that's just, I'll tell you what that reminds me of. That is basically like a Genesis 1 version, mm. but with more detail. The Genesis yeah. 1, it, so it's also in the beginning, God did this, that, and the other, but it doesn't really say how. Was that actually nails it, doesn't it? It tells you mm. how he
2: did it. That's interesting. Yeah, we yeah, there's, there's lots of things that come to my mind here. This thing where he talks about the, um, this father being the son and the mother, the moon, um, mm-hmm. you, you have both genders there. You do have this sort of unity of opposites, the male and the female, the son and the moon. Um, and it says after this, it says its power is complete. And I think it's important to see that it requires both. You know, oh, it requires the feminine and the masculine in order for its power to be complete.
3: And that's why, again, coming back to a biblical perspective where it says, let us make man in our image. It, and then it says um, they made man in their image, in their likeness, male and female. Yes, yes.
2: Uh, and then this this bit about a fire that becomes earth. It yeah, comes what's that out, all about? Well, you know, he's talking about – the subtle and the gross. And the, by the subtle, I think he means like the numinous, the spiritual part of ourselves. Yeah. Gross is like the material part of ourselves. So you have yeah, this dual... gross,
3: gross is you sort of start off as a worm, and uh, <laughs> subtle is you yeah. end up as an angel.
2: Right. And that, it's also funny because, like I told you this before, but in the Islamic tradition, um, angels were made from fire. And that all, that goes back to the Zoroastrian religion because they actually, they were called fire worshippers because they, they would... They would give their prayers to a a fire. The fire was the representation of God. So there's this connection between fire and spirit. And what he says is a fire that becomes earth, a spirit that becomes material, you know, God becoming the cosmos. I love that.
3: I love that. I actually had uh, a conversation with Mariella, I think it was, this morning, and uh, we were just looking at the idea in the past, I've I've kind of posited this idea that um, everything started out as, you know, you've got God or Source, and then from that you get angels, and then you know, like lesser gods, and then from that you get humans, you know, with spirits inhabiting humans. But after I've after I've read this Kabbalion and also what you've what you've said there, it strikes me that I might have this upside down, possibly. Mm-hmm that the way that the creation occurs is that the source, the ultimate absolute, empties himself to a point where it is the lowest it can go, the grossest it can go, the most physical it can be. And then what happens, this in-drawing, this evolution, Mm -hmm. is a spiritward movement where we basically ascend, not just physically, Mm -hmm. evolving physically, into humans, but also mentally and spiritually. And somewhere along the line, what is probably happening there, as we die as humans, we're actually becoming spirit. That's where your spirits are probably ending up uh, from, not from probably being created as spirit in the first place, but having Mm. ascended to a spirit level. And then um, maybe reincarnation comes into that as well.
2: So... You bring up the word "ascended" to describe ascending, yeah. And it's funny because the eighth line of, of this says, "With great capacity, it ascends from earth to heaven. Yeah. Again, it descends from earth and takes back the power of the above and the below. Yes. And and you got your
3: reincarnation matter.
2: there. Yeah, absolutely. It yep. also describe it also describes that process that I bring up from time to time because it's. God becoming the material cosmos and then the material cosmos becoming God. It's this back and forth. And if you, if you listen, he says, he says, and takes back the power of the above and the below. What that tells me is that God learns something by becoming me. Right. And then I gain something by becoming God, that there's a back and forth. There's a process. It looks a little bit like that wave we've been talking about, but there's a, there's a, back, a there's a back and forth, and it and both sides are necessary. You yeah. know, being and the non-being, the God and the in the cosmos. You know, yeah.
3: I think awesome. I think that's it. I think that's it. And when we are um, ultimately, uh, we get back on a spirit plane. You know, fifth dimension. Um, and I think at that point we have a choice. I do think we have a choice. I don't think anybody is forced necessarily to reincarnate back. I think you can either choose to uh, stay where you are as a spirit, uh, perhaps act as a spirit guide if anyone will listen to you, or maybe get—you know—you might want to come back for another, another human uh, experience, or uh, you might, at that point, decide I want to be assimilated back into Source, back mm. into the All. And like you say, I think if that is the case, you would be taking something valuable with
1: you—an
3: mm. um, experience that. Is a real experience that maybe Source only ever had as a potentiality. Man, that's, that's
2: good. It. Does, that, does that remind you of Jacob's ladder?
3: Yes, I suppose it does, bit. Yeah. <laughs> the,
2: yeah. Angels descending. the angels
3: descending and In- ascending. Yeah. Bit of reincarnation mm. going on there. <laughs> so, uh, well, that was it. That was lovely. Um, I think our time's about up now, isn't it?
2: Yes, sir. It's always thank a pleasure, Daniel.
3: Thank you for joining me again. I'll uh, I'll stay online uh, in just a moment and we can just uh, have a quick chat before we uh, bid Perfect. farewell. But uh, let's thank everybody for joining us uh, this evening for our live stream. Um, thanks for dropping in. I hope you can join us uh, again soon. Thank you. Big thank special you. thank you to uh, Chris over there for joining us. Always a pleasure. I always learn something new every time you come on.
0: <laughs> my, my pleasure, Daniel. Let's find out together in the next episode.